Thank you guys uh, very much for gathering here with us. Uh, if you're new to Mission Church or if you have forgotten, uh, we're working through the book of Ephesians kind of line by line, verse by verse. And we are in the section in Ephesians chapter 5 uh, dealing with marriage. And so for the last uh, two weeks leading up to today, we've been talking about marriage. First one was what is the gospel-centered marriage? Last week, what is the gospel-centered wife? Um, and today will be the gospel-centered husband, and then next week I'm thinking about it'll be probably together for the gospel. And so um, that's where we have been. And so wives who secretly drug your husbands here to our gathering, job well done. You did great. And so we are glad that you have joined us today. So, brothers, speaking to you today, um, I know last week that whenever I was up here, I was joking about possibly becoming red-faced um, here in my, in my address uh, to you, but I want you to know this morning that that is it's not my heartbeat. That was a joke. Uh, my desire, though, is to pastor you and to not beat you up. I feel like the reality is most of you uh, came here already beat up and feeling probably pretty defeated. Uh, this does not mean that I'm not going to talk about some very difficult things this morning that we need to work through. However, my prayer is that by God's mercy and grace that he would shine even more in the midst of our brokenness. So there is a lot here. Um, I wish, I'm not as concerned about it, but I understand that you are, um, about time and how much time that we have here today. I, I wish that we could go old school, like biblical, uh, when sermons were really long and lasted all day, and we took breaks for lunch and dinner, and then we kept going. Um, but I understand that I am weird. Um, and so there is a lot for me to say here today. There is no way I'm going to be able to do this justice. And so my heartbeat and my prayer is, is to offer a few things to you. One, that I would love to, as I know that uh, Pastor Justin Wood, Pastor Todd, would love to gather with any of you or multiple groups of you to discuss these things further. Um, also, I think that's one of the powerful things of having a missional community group is that based on this sermon, uh, Pastor Justin will be writing out some devotional questions. We will meet and gather in homes in mixed company um, to talk about these things even deeper this coming Wednesday night. So here's my shameless plug. You should be involved in a side of a missional community. We want to encourage you to be involved in that. It's just as important to us as Mission Church as what we are doing right now. And so I want to encourage you to do that. So that's to the brothers. Ladies, a word of advice. If you are here last week, you'll understand this. Do not poke the bear this afternoon. I will poke him enough. All right? Do not poke the bear this afternoon. You need to pray for your husband. Okay? I don't want to see any eyes rolling, ladies. I don't want to see any nudgings, okay? Because don't make me change my subject for next week, all right? Um, so let's just be aware of that. Cool? All right, brothers, no distractions, no ADD moments. Me and you today, let's do this. Manhood starts in Genesis as God creates our first father, the prototype of man, our first father, Adam. And inside of the garden, God believed that this creation was good. Adam was um, a perfect, in, in, in every sense of what we can understand, a, a great just man, physically, intellectually, emotionally. It was good. And God loved Adam. And creation was good. Man was created first, and in the creation of man, he gave, God gave Adam the law. See, the law didn't simply come when Moses came onto the scene. The law has always been a part of God's plan. And God comes to Adam, and he gives him a law, right? He says, you can pretty much do anything in this garden that you want to do. Um, work it, name the animals, don't eat of that tree. And so in this situation, it was, it was good. God gave him a responsibility. God gave him a role, and that role was to steward the earth. Adam works pre-fall, but his work was quite different. It was much more like a, a king 
on a throne and creation kind of just serves him and all this is joint together and to bring worship and honor to God. His labor is one of authority. It is one of management. It is one of stewardship. The, the soil just naturally produces these plants that naturally reproduce themselves. So essentially the whole picture of a man sitting there being fed grapes is what God created in the garden. And he didn't have to work and toil the ground. He did not have to labor in the sense of what you and I have to labor in. It was God's provision and he enjoyed God and he enjoyed God's creation as he stewarded it. It provided for his every need. He simply reached out and he ate. And it was good. He names every animal. God has given him that responsibility. And as we talked about last week, that God saw that it was not good for Adam then to be alone. And so he causes Adam to go to sleep, takes from his side a, a rib, and from that rib he makes a helper fit for him, a wife, a woman. And this beginning scenes inside of the scripture is one of a wedding. And it is good. And we don't have a timeline here of this picture of this man and his wife running around in this garden, stewarding it, managing it together as husband and wife. But we soon find out that there's also something else that begins to happen in the garden. As they go and as they eat of the one fruit of the tree that God says not to eat from it, or they would surely die. And things drastically change for humanity. Things drastically change for mankind. Things go a completely different way. We call this the fall of man or the death that comes. Death comes um, to man. It comes to his relationships. It comes to his relationship with God. It comes to his relationship with his wife. It comes to his relationship with his children. It comes to his relationships with other men and other women. It comes to, to, to the physical aspect of his relationship with the ground itself. When sin, Satan, and death comes into the life of man, this changes everything. And it is a very serious thing. Very serious. What is the false effect on the men? I did this last week with the ladies. I'm going to do this this week with the men. And like I said, I'm going to have to move through these things very, very quickly here today. But the, the fall or the great death's effect on man, males specifically is very widespreading. The first thing that we see is, is after Adam and Eve eat of the fruit, after Adam, um, the serpent is cursed, Eve is cursed, and now Adam is cursed. And we see that the curse that God places upon man and upon the ground is that man's work has changed. Instead of creation just providing for him over and over and over again, now what must Adam do? He must labor and toil for everything that he has. It is by the very sweat of his brow that he digs, plants, has bugs to deal with, the sun to deal with, heat, cold, all of these aspects of life and creation are now working against him. Work has become very frustrating. Work has become very constant for him. But we need to understand, it's not that work has become punishment. Work isn't punishment. It's just that the difficulties of work have now been created for him. Early on in Laura and I's marriage, um, we didn't have very much money at all. And I remember trying to get our first apartment together and then eventually our first house and um, how many of you guys have ever bought furniture that comes in a box and that you have to put together? Yeah, you cussed that day. All right? Furniture should not have to be coming in a box. Furniture should not be shipped to your house to be screwed together by a man who refuses to read the directions. It's a very frustrating thing. That's one of the reasons why I got into furniture building was is I refused to buy any more furniture that comes in a box for me to have to put together. All right? 
And so everything that we do, the very remedial task, brothers, that should take a very short amount of time, I don't know about you, for, but for me, become all-day affairs, and by the end of it, you're grumbling and complaining about how this should have only taken five minutes, but it has taken now five hours. It seems as though nothing comes easy to us as men, and it doesn't. This is all due to the fall. So the first thing is is that man's work has changed because of the fall. The second thing, the way that the fall and the great death has affected you and I, brothers, is this. We are extremely lonely individuals. Men are lonely. Even married men are lonely. We who are married feel that same tug at our hearts, gentlemen, for our affections in many occasions as our single brothers do. We are lonely men. I want you to think about the older men in your life. What are their male friendships like? Very few older men have very healthy friendships. Now, I'm not saying they don't have golfing buddies. They don't have hunting buddies or fishing buddies. Let's all face it, all of those relationships can be very surfacey. And so it's very possible for a man, I, the older men that I know, many of them do not have anyone. If you were to say, who is your best friend? Many of them cannot answer that. And if you were to talk to them deeper about if they were to give a name, sounds nothing like the best friend that we would see inside of Scripture. It is merely an acquaintance that you do activities with. Men, those surrounded by a wife, those surrounded, many of us, by children, those surrounded by a plethora of men, often feel, because of sin, Satan, and death resting in our very nature, very much alone. So man's work has changed. Man feels lonely. The third thing is, is that we have what is known as the absent father wound. Most of the men that I know, and if I was to sit down with you and I've had to deal with these own issues in my own life, they have what is called the absent father wound. That men in general have some sort of daddy issue within their hearts. What do I mean by the absent father wound? Well, in many cases, this means that literally the daddy has abandoned mom, that daddy has abandoned the children, and he is living far off somewhere away from them. He has abandoned them. He is absent from them. But do not be mistaken this morning, many of us who even have dads who were in the home can also experience what is known as the absent father wound. As the dad will come in and and spend all day at work but pour little into his sons, pour little into his daughters. So he is he is present his, his his let's say this he is his body is present but he is not present he gave all of his presence to the work day and he has very little to give to the home life this creates within young men especially growing up in a home where they are disconnected from their dads they simply do not really know their dads they don't have many memories with their dads and if they do they're very spontaneous and they are grasping and holding on to this and many of those homes like in my own home um, because of my dad's understanding of what it meant to be a great provider and he was a mom will often step into the situation to, to try to take over the role that is only supposed to be for the husband. So then, the son will become overly bonded to his mom. And this also begins to cause issues within the home and later on in life as well. Man's work has changed. Man is lonely. Man has experienced what is known as an absent father wound and there's all sorts of information about this that we can sit down and talk more about it inside of men the last two things are going to be big headings and i'm going to give you examples behind them i think the rest of manhood sin in our very nature can be summed up into two broad categories the first one is is passivity and the second one is 
aggression. Due to our first sin, the legacy of sin, Satan, and death that has been passed on from generation to generation to generation is that man's work changed, that we are lonely, that we have an absent father wound, and then the last two things, that we are extremely passive as males, and we have a tendency to be severely aggressive as males. Typically, most men will struggle with one of those over the other, but in some really bad cases, you will have a male that is deeply immersed in both of these things. So what do I mean by passivity? I mean this. Passivity is not the absence of doing something. But it's rather pursuing something that God has not designed for you to do. It's not the inability to make a decision. It's that you've made a decision. I'm not going to make a decision. Okay? This is passivity. It is inside of us apart from Jesus. It is inside of our hearts. It is inside of our very nature. This means that we're not making Jesus the priority of our daily life. That everything within us is not consumed with Jesus. So we are passive towards the things of God in order to do what we want to do. So you could say that this is selfish passivity. The next thing that we see inside of passivity is the man will often withdraw. When a man gets upset who wrestles with passivity is that he withdraws. He has uh, abandonment. He has isolation. He wants to isolate himself from his wife. He wants to isolate himself from his kids. He wants to isolate himself from his church family. He, He loves to pout and whine. And woe is me. We call this as a kid, I'm going to take my ball and go home, Johnny. And it is nothing worse to see a grown man, instead of pressing into the table, isolate himself, withdraw from his family, and abandon them in a small, small way that will often practice deleting them and withdrawing from them in a really big way. I'm upset I'm not going to church. I'm not going to a missional community. I'm not going to spend time with you. I'll show you. This is a passive man. Another way that passivity shows up inside of a man is through fantasy. Men or males love fantasy. Think about how many grown men are addicted to pornography, are listening to music that they should not be listening to, are, are weekend warriors and really good at hobbies. They, they love movies. The average video game user is a 34-year-old man. We have things called fantasy football. Yes, I'm talking to you. All right? We can't play the sport, so let's pretend like we own it. All right? Now, in and of themselves, I'm not saying that there's never a proper place for, there is never a proper place for porn. All right? But some of the things, it's not that they are in and of themselves bad, but men will often be controlled. They will be passive. Instead of spending time with their family, they're watching the same ESPN over and over and over again. They can't wait to get home. They won't spend time with their family, but they can't wait to get home to watch the football. I'm so glad my, all of my teams are terrible. The Mets, the Bears, and Western are all awful. We're terrible. I'm so glad I don't have good teams because it leads me not to be obsessed with any of them. All right? So, brothers, I encourage you, get terrible teams. It'll help you be a better dad and husband. All right? But a man will fall into fantasy. We love fantasy worlds. We love the idea of of Braveheart. And we can all see ourselves a little bit into William Wallace when he says they can take our lives, but they can't take our freedom. Rip me to shreds. We we love to get caught up into Saving Private Ryan and, and Gladiator and these sports movies because we are somehow vicariously living through a, an avatar in a video game. Because we have no adventure in our reality. Proverbs twelve eleven says, Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits, and some translations even translate that fantasy, 
lacks sense. I heard a pastor say one time, I don't know that video games are sinful, they're just stupid. They're just dumb. The, another way that a passivity shows up in a man is that he is silent when he should speak. Another way is he, he fear of rejection or failure, so he doesn't engage. I'll hear from all the time men who will hate their jobs, but can't man up enough to do something about it. There's a lack of organization inside of a passive man. A lack of plan for the now. A lack of plan for the future. Also within the passive man, there is great boredom. And what does boredom do for a man? Idle hands cause chaos. We don't know how to handle boredom. As soon as Noah gets done preaching for an hour, uh, excuse me, 120 years, he's calling people to repent, calling them to repent, calling them to repent. God makes it rain. He hops on a boat that he just built with all of the animals. He goes for 40 days and 40 nights. And what does he do as soon as he doesn't have any work to do? Creates a vineyard and is found buck naked and drunk. Boredom. What does Adam do? Or what, is, what does David do? Just walking on top of his house. Oh, there's a naked woman. Bring her to me. We can see this mentality over and over and over again. The passive man is a lazy man. He's lazy. Doesn't work hard. He's not a hard worker. He's trying to find the easy way. What's quick fix? Quick money. How can I fill out the, the publisher's clearinghouse quick enough in order to take care of these things? A passive man is an addict. A passive man will often find himself deeply immersed in drugs and alcohol, food, gluttonous. I mean, how many of us men, how many of us fight obesity? Another way that we become passive as men is that we love to blame shift. We love to play the victim. When God shows up on the scene with Adam and Eve, and he's walking around the garden, he's looking for them, and he begins to question Adam, what's the first thing that Adam begins to do? Blame shift, gentlemen. First he says, it was that woman, she gave me the fruit. And then God presses into him more, and then what's, what's Adam do? God, you made that woman. If you have problems at home, it's always her fault. It's always your kid's fault. If you have a problem at work, it's always their fault. If somebody is, is causing you problems driving down Scottsville Road, it is always the other person's fault. This is a passive man. When Eve goes to eat of the fruit, there's this great, I don't know if it's great, it's a very haunting phrase. Because often when we think about Eve eating of the fruit, we wonder where Adam is. Like he's off playing golf with the hippos or something. I don't know what he is doing, but we often get this picture that Adam is far away as his wife is committing spiritual suicide, and yet that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that she's eating of the fruit, that her husband is right there with him. He is passive. Let her make the mistake. Let's see what happens to her first. If she's okay, then I'll, then I'll eat. We see this in passivity. We see insecurity and shame. Most men, all we can see is our failures. All we can see is our insecurities. All we can see is the regret. And it imprisons us. It enslaves us to this. And lastly, a passive man is an immature man. It's been coined by other brothers that I've got great respect for that an immature man is what it's known as a ban. This is a boy trapped inside of a man's body. This is a boy who can shave. It's a ban. And our culture is producing 
these kind of expectations over and over and over and over and over again. Being a man is not the same thing as being a male. You were born a male, but that does not make you a man. And the the opportunity to grow gray hair does not make you a man. You can be really old and really immature. This is the effect of sin on men. The other way is, it's through aggression. Because of sin, many of us will struggle with anger. Many of us men in this room, will, we will struggle with anger. Have you ever met a man who wants to fight anyone and everyone? He yells at the screen. He yells at cars. Any moment where he feels the slightest disrespect he is ready to fight he he is a a tyrant who is often prone to violence whether that's physically or verbally he is a a bully he is a control freak who's more concerned about being right than doing what is right this man is a strong armor who will do whatever it takes to get his way Another way that a man will be aggressive in his sin is, is sexual. We have seen this with the rise and the, the coming to light with the Me Too movement. That men will use their power, their popularity, their money, their prestige, all of these things in order to sexually be aggressive toward women. And we live in a culture that will, up until recently, really celebrate it. And thanks be to God, many of these things are being brought to light, not only in our culture, but also in the church. That we have zero tolerance for this sort of mentality. This sexual aggression will show that sex, instead of being good, is that sex is God. The next thing that we'll see in this aggression is that a man will be characterized as often being Mr. Law, but never Mr. Grace. What do I mean by that? He will be extremely religious, as it's often quoted, or we quote this, that he will be religious without relationship, and that will always lead to rebellion in his home and in his life. He will be Mr. Law, but never Mr. Grace. This means that he will nitpick his wife and kids and others to death. He will always see what is wrong in everyone and everything else, but refuse to do anything about the wrong in his own life. Another one in regards to aggression is that he speaks when he should be silent. An aggressive man is a glory hound. He needs to be recognized. It needs to be noticed. No one else can receive the credit if it was originally his idea. And again, the aggressive man will withhold affection. He will withhold time, talent, and treasure. He will often be a person who will give you the silent treatment instead of doing what is said. See, the fruit of sin has left man confused. And if we have ever been in a state of confusion with inside manhood, it is now. Brothers, they don't even want me to call you a he. You're no longer male. You're expected to be unisex. If you grew up like I did in watching Saturday Night Live, there was a character called Pat. An androgynous person. All right? And that is what culture is trying to create in you, is is that you can no longer be a man, that you need to be something other than a man, and yet God has created you and I to be man. And I don't care what the culture says, we need to bring back biblical manhood. We've been left in this confusion, lonely and passive, angry, and very dangerous. This, this issue has, of sin, Satan, and death has left us separated from God, separated from our wives, separated from our kids, separated from our church, separated from true friendship. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever smelt something dead? Like, I'm talking about a dead animal. It has a very distinct smell, doesn't it? It doesn't smell like just trash rotting. I'm talking about the smell of death. It's a very, very, that kind of rotting makes you want to gag because you've been around this death. It's very, very 
specific, and he calls a very, very specific response. Can I contend to you today that this is the same aroma that such a man who is in sin, Satan, and death, that his own marriage, his children, and his home and his heart will all reek of death. Death everywhere he goes. Death. This is the power of sin and Satan and death. And yet, what does the Bible call us to? Is that we should have a very specific aroma, gentlemen. That the aroma within our hearts should be that of the Christ. That the very aroma of our lives should be that of the gospel. And so when we take this idea of what has the, the falls and the great death happened, or its effects on man, and we compare that to the effects of the gospel, then we begin to see a very different picture for those of us who are in Christ. For those of us in Christ, this is natural to us. The things that I'm about to share with you will naturally come out of you. Why? Because you are in Jesus. The Bible told us in Ephesians that you've been filled with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will not lay dormant inside of you. If you are inside of Christ Jesus, you are going to continue to struggle with those things that I just mentioned, brother, but there is a true and better way for you to live and you will live it in Jesus. You will. In Jesus. And so what is the picture of these things? In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, as we are read to today, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. The wife is to submit to her husband. This is mutual submission. She submits as he is the head, which we'll get to in just a second. He submits to her through love. But the question is, is what is love? Well, the Bible, thank goodness, tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4 through 8, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hope all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And that type of love is completely opposite to the two lists that I just gave you earlier. And so it looks ridiculous, gentlemen. For you to say that you love your wife and that you love your kids... And yet you look more like those first things that I just spoke. Because when the love of Jesus, the ultimate bearer of these things that does not rejoice in wrongdoing, gentlemen, if you have a filing cabinet filled of all of your wife's mistakes, then you are not loving her. You're not. Love does not insist in its own way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. So you keep reading down a little bit further. And what does Paul say? When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish things. Those were love and then manhood slammed together right there in the matter of a few verses. And this is the love that we are called to. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13 through 14, it says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men. It doesn't say act like a boy. It doesn't say act like an animal. It says stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. We submit to Jesus, gentlemen, by loving our wives. And this was extremely countercultural then when Paul wrote this, and is extremely countercultural now. The command to love is the responsibility of the husband, regardless of his wife's behavior. It does not matter what she does, you are called to love. We illustrate this when we say things that is for better or for worse in sickness, and in health. And I understand, brothers, some of you, it is better, and some of you are having to love and worse. That some of you, your wife is healthy physically and spiritually, and some of your wives are extremely sick and ill. But you are commanded to love them, no matter what they do or how they respond. 
See, Jesus loved the church not because of what the church could do for him. Think about that. What can you bring to Jesus that he doesn't already have? What can you offer to Jesus that he does not already have and control? Absolutely nothing. The, the call of Christ, the illustration that we see in Christ in the church is he, he loved the church not because of what the church could do for him, but solely on what he knew he could do for the church. And likewise, brothers, this is how we should be toward our wives. Is that in spite of her, if she brings nothing to the table, it is all about what we bring to her. So, how does a gospel-centered man love his wife? Here we go. How does a gospel-centered man love his wife? The first thing that he does, he loves her by leading her. He loves her by leading her. How do we see this inside the scripture? We see this in the concept of headship. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. What does he mean by headship here? It means this, that he manages his home, that he has a plan. That leadership here does not mean that he is the boss or that he is the ruler, but rather that he leads her by serving her. See, a bulk of the instruction here is toward men, isn't it? Ladies get like these two little sentences that are still immersed with all this stuff about manhood and how we're supposed to act. And then we get this giant paragraph. This is the issue with inside of manhood. And we're called to be the head of our wife as Christ is the head of the church. The man is responsible for his home. Ladies, you do not want the position of manhood. You do not want the position of husband. Why? Because he will be judged more strictly than you will be. See, after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and God shows up on the scene, who does God want to speak to first? Adam. Who does he hold responsible for what is taking place in the garden? Adam. Who is mentioned in the New Testament as sin has come to the world through one man, Adam. That the responsibility in this, and so a man truly loves her, loves his wife by leading his wife. The second way that you will love your wife is through sacrificial service. It's through sacrificial service. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The gospel-centered husband, brothers, is a call for you to die a thousand small deaths every day for the sake of that wife. For some of you, it may be a very call to, to physically even to give up your physical life, but it is definitely this idea that everything within your life, you are willing to sacrifice, not for your own benefit, but for the benefit of his wife. He sacrifices his time. In the summertime, I get the joy of waking up every Saturday to go to a yard sale. Because that's what my wife wants to do. When we first got married, there wasn't a mall that my wife would not stop by when we were traveling. And now that has become the Goodwill. We love the Goodwill. My wife, my girl loves the Goodwill. She loves the consignment store. And I find myself, our entire anniversary weekend, we spent more time in consignment shops and me standing there like this than doing anything else. Why? That's what she likes to do. I want to be with her. I want to be engaged with her. This is what she enjoys doing, so I'm going to walk right alongside of her with that. She loves these sorts of things. It's, a, it's about giving up our talent. See, your talent, if you're a good business person, isn't about you climbing the social or, or, or company ladder, but everything that you do within that company should be for her. And treasure, gentlemen, more should be bought for her than for you. You are merely willing to get by if you can provide for her. See, a man that sacrifices his time, talent, and treasure for his wife, guess what he can't be good at? 
anything to do with fantasy. I'm always amazed who men who are married are great fishermen, great golfers, great at video games. Because how do you have time to do those things? Because every time you're saying yes to those, you're saying no to your wife and your kids. Now again, is there ever a proper placement for that? Yes. But if you're really good at something, then you're probably really bad at your marriage. There you go. We see this all the time. See, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to say, brothers specifically, to say no to a lot in order that you can say yes to your wife. So he loves her by leading. He loves her through sacrificial service. He loves her through pastoring. He loves her through pastoring. See, every one of your homes should be a a micro version of the church. And inside of every church, God appoints elders. He appoints pastors. In verse 26 and through 27, it says this, that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her with the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Here we see the illustration of Jesus inside of our lives as the church, but it's also the model that we are to have for every one of our wives. We are to sanctify our wives. What does that mean? One, it means that she is set apart. I want you to know, ladies, in this room, I love all of you, but I have a specific love for my wife that is different than my love for you. I know every woman in this room, but I know my wife in a different way than I know all of you. This is a specific sanctification. It is setting apart all other relationships with all other women should look like hate in my love and relationship with Laura. We see this in the side of the gospel-centered husband, that he does not lead her to sin, but he leads her to Christ. He serves her to Christ. Another way that he does this, as according to the scriptures, he does this through the word. The word here primarily refers to the proclamation of the gospel to her over and over and over and over again because the ramifications of Eve's sin inside of every lady's sin is, I believe, that she can still continually and easily be gullible and deceived by sin many times quicker than a man will. And so his responsibility inside of the home is to constantly be preaching the word to her, preaching the word to her, preaching the word to her. This is the gospel. Listen to the voice of truth. Listen to God for your identity. He is preaching, preaching gospel, gospel, gospel. He is illustrating gospel, 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 gospel. He is washing her with the word. And what does this do? It does what our first father Adam would not do. And that's preach the gospel when his wife was about to sin. So those of us who are gospel-centered, who love Jesus and love our wives, are going to preach to our wives. Brothers, let me ask you a very serious question. Is your affections, is, is your wife's affections for Jesus stirred by your imitation of him? Can you honestly say to your wife, imitate me as I imitate Jesus? And she's like, okay. Or does she look at you like a joker? Does she say to you things like, man, if that's what being like Jesus is like, I want nothing to do with this Jesus character. Or can she easily do that? By watching your relationship, brother, your relationship with Jesus, does she aspire to love Jesus even more? In Psalm 128.3, it says, Your wife will be a fruitful vine within your house. Get the picture of a fruitful vine. It's healthy. It's creating fruit. She's blossoming into everything that she was meant to be. Why? Because she is connected to the vine. And who's, who's the vine where you are? And who's the ultimate vine? Jesus is. And because you love Jesus and because you love her and because you are healthy spiritually and physically and emotionally, then your wife gets to blossom into the beautiful thing that she is because she is connected to you. That's what the Bible says. So we must ask the question, is your wife a fruitful vine? 
because she is in your home. The fourth thing is that he loves her through provision. In verse 28 through 30, it says, In the same way, husbands, you should love your wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. In 1 Timothy 5.8, it'll say, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Provision from male headship is extremely serious. A gospel-centered man is aware of his wife's needs and he attends to them without always having to be told, this is what I need. But he's paying attention. He is nourishing her. He is, he is providing for her. And nourishment here in the Greek is the picture of a parent taking care of a small child. It is, it is tenderly caring for and providing for her every need. Now, ladies, I didn't say every want. Every need. Every need. He jumps to provide for these things. A gospel-centered man, because he wants to provide, is not lazy inside or outside the home. Brothers, if your wife believes that you're a lazy man, you need to listen to her. You need to listen to her. And the idea of just providing at your job, but not giving provision once you get home, is a great mistake Brothers, let me encourage you that when you leave first shift and you come home, take a minute in, in the truck, in the car, before you go into that house and say, Lord Jesus, give me enough strength because second shift is about to begin. And second shift is way more important than first shift. May we be that kind of men. These are gospel-centered men. Brothers, for us to be good providers, you should be the first person up inside of your house. You should be the last one to go to bed. And I'm not talking about being the last one going to bed because you're sitting up watching things that you should not be watching. See, a hardworking man is a tired man that falls into the bed every night and says, Lord Jesus, thank you for giving me the strength to make it that day. May you give me enough rest tonight to make it through tomorrow for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of my wife. See, brothers, our yes should be on the table for our wives. We want to be able to say yes a lot inside of our homes. And that should be the practice. What would you like? How can I best serve you? Instead of you expecting to rattle your glass and have it filled with tea, but we should be the ones going to her first and foremost saying, how can I best serve you? How can I best give you this? What, what can I do to make your life better today for you to honor Jesus? How can I make it as smooth as possible? I will lay down my life sacrificially. I will give sacrificial service. I will pastor you. I will provide whatever you need to make this the best day that we can possibly make it. My yes is on the table. Also, to provide for her, you must say no. Because you have to become more concerned about her long-time holiness than her momentary happiness. See, a gospel center man is thinking more about glory and how do we get there than he does in this moment. And so that we often will say, yes, 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 there comes an occasion where we have to say no. Physically, spiritually, and emotionally, we should be providing for our, work, our, our, our kids and for our wives. Did you get that? We should be providing physically. We should be providing spiritually. We should be providing emotionally. And we should be providing sexually. Gentlemen, I know that this is a really big issue for many of us inside of this room. It is a, a dragon that is deeply embedded into our hearts. It seems to awaken us. We go from hating girls one day to the light switch going off inside of us. And it is an uncontrollable beast that the more that you feed, the more will control you. And we are being bombarded by everything in our culture to tell us to eat, 
eat, eat, feed the dragon, feed the dragon, feed the dragon, feed the dragon, to the point where we have small little boys now addicted to pornography, causing all sorts of issues in them as they objectify women who are often put into sex slavery because our continual addiction to pornography. It is a you take all the major league sports, you add up all the money and revenue that they make every year, and it does not compare to how much money is made in pornography every single year. This is a systemic problem that, that is rooted in a man who is involved in sin, Satan, and death, and it will ruin your life, it will ruin your marriage, and it will ruin a church. We need to understand and have a healthy view of sex, that, that God made it. That the very picture of being bone to bone and flesh to flesh is a sexual picture. That's why, one of the reasons why God hates divorce is that it causes physical separation that should be meshed together. That we should have this understanding that, that, that Christians should have the healthiest, and I'm about to get some amens from brothers. We're, we're, you're finally awake. I started talking about sex. You're like, ooh, all right. Christians should have the healthiest, best, most consistent sex lives on the planet. We should. We should have God-honoring, robust, fun, as long as it's held between man and woman, the marriage covenant. That is a worship gathering between you, them, and God. He is worshipped. God is like, praise me. Praise me! And we have painted this picture of ugliness and darkness, and it's embedded into our kids to where we even get into a Christian marriage, and it is vacant. Ladies, this is to you, because you wield a lot of power in that area. I get it. You do not understand what I'm talking about. You look at human anatomy, and you're like, Ugh. Okay? I, I get it. For a majority of you, it is a major struggle. You do not get why your husbands, I want you to understand, ladies, if your husband looks at pornography, it has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with your body. It has nothing to do with any of those sorts of things. It has to do with him and God. He's ultimately sinning to God himself, and it has ramifications inside of your home. That doesn't excuse what he is doing. But inside of a Christian marriage, I know marriage after marriage after marriage of two people who claim to know and follow Jesus, and they have a sexless marriage. And this is extremely dangerous. And ladies, that does not excuse your husband to go out here and to cheat on you and to look at porn and pleasure himself or any of those sorts of things. It is no excuse for him to do that. But you are his only outlet in a God-honoring way. And the Bible says that you should not abstain from it. The Bible says in Corinthians, like, you should be doing it consistently so that, that he doesn't burn, okay? Again, doesn't excuse his sin, does not give him permission to sin or any of those sorts of things. But if we are claiming to follow Jesus, and I'm not talking about people who are physically incapable of doing this. I'm talking about two healthy individuals here. It should be going on. It should be happening. Because it is extremely struggle. I'm telling you, it is something that is burning within us as husbands. Ladies, as much as you need to be loved and respected and honored, your husband needs these things. Now, gentlemen, where you look foolish, though, is that you will not treat your, way, your wife in a gospel-centered way. And we've all done this. We've been a complete punk, yelling, screaming, texting, whatever you want to call it. And as soon as it's done, go, hey, you want to do it? You me? You me? Yeah, you're chuckling because you know I'm right. And he can switch that quick to go that way. And you're looking at a fool that he's expecting you to want to be intimate with him when he's treated you like trash, gentlemen. Now, you shouldn't treat her good in order to get those things. You surrender to Jesus. You serve Jesus no matter whether she will or not. But it's a very extremely serious situ situation. I mean, the two top, top things for divorce, money, sexual problems. Even within the church. And so, gentlemen, we've got to take this 
serious. It's not about us, even in the bedroom. It's about Jesus, and it's about her. How can I do all these other gospel-centered things? How can I do all of these loving things to my wife, even inside of the bedroom? Number five, he loves her through protection. I gotta speed up. Loves her through protection. Jesus goes to war against sin, Satan, and death to protect the church. We are to protect our wives. Likewise, husbands should protect our wives. A wife should feel safest when she is in your arms. She should be safe physically with you, spiritually with you, emotionally with you, sexually with you. In Colossians 3.19, husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. That means to protect their hearts. Protect what you say. They should feel safe when they are around you. And yet, if you are not being like Christ and she feels unsafe, this is a major problem within the home. The last thing is he loves her through pursuit. 1 Peter 3, 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your own wives in an understanding way, showing honor to a woman as a weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. What does he mean by understanding way? This means to know her. This means to study her. A man can know more about a Tyrannosaurus Rex than he can his own wife. And the person who knows about T-Rex is just looking at bones. Gentlemen, we can know more about sports. We can know more about just men are notorious for useless information. At least all my friends are. We know about all kinds of stuff, but we, the Bible says that you need to understand that literally means to study your wife. Ooh, look at the wildebeest. I mean, we should all be like trying to figure this, this thing out. We're, we're studying this, this creature in the wild, okay? I mean, that we're looking. I know it's strange. You're like, man, I have nothing in common with the hippopotamuses. Not that any of you ladies are hippos. <laughs> Cut that, all right? Sorry, elders, I received the rebuke and the elder known as my wife. All right, ladies, you're not, but you get my picture here, okay? Is that this mysterious thing, this woman, this created thing that is completely opposite, yet like you in so many ways, the Bible says, be understanding, get to know her quirks, get to know what she likes, get to know what she dislikes. Husbands, if I was to say, go home and are on your way home tonight, gather something to bless your wife with, how many of you would have to call her friend or your mama to ask? But you so know her. You know her like no one else knows. You have become dumb to everything else, but you are an expert at knowing how your wife ticks. I'd rather be terrible at golf than be a terrible husband. Be good at that. Be terrible at everything else other than loving Jesus. Be a scrub. Be an all-star toward your wife. And that takes cultivation. It takes practice. It, ter- it, it means this in this pursuit that our prayers aren't even hindered by, by this. That a man takes the initiative. That's what your wife wants. Even if it's the wrong initiative. Where do you want to go eat? I don't care where you want to go eat. Where do you want to go eat? 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 She just wants you to decide so that she can decide not to want to go there. <laughs> but at least you made a decision for her to disagree with. She's going to get a salad chicken fingers unless she's my wife. She's going to be filet mignon. All right? It's like, it's a McDonald's, girl. They ain't got that here. Quarter pounder. Cheese. Filet yuck. All right? I mean, this is, this is the situation. She would rather you make a decision even if it's the wrong one. Guess what she's going to do in her giftedness? Fill in all of the holes in your plan. She's going to do that, and that's what she's supposed to do. She's your helpmate, a person who, in pursuit, he pursues forgiveness, reconciliation, repentance. He's the first to say, I'm sorry. He's not a keeper of the score. He's not trying to figure out and beat her up for her past. It doesn't matter if it was her fault and you did nothing wrong. Jesus did nothing wrong, yet he pursued every one of us in this room. And likewise, we should be pursuing our wives. 
That is the cause of Christ. Let us not forget the gospel in this. And you're going to say, but she, but she, but she, but she, in spite of her, you pursue her because in spite of Jesus, Jesus pursues you. Jesus left his throne to go get the girl, the church. He was not responding to her faulty, sin-filled church. He had a plan. He took the lead, and he went, and he got her. Jesus was single, but he was engaged. And he's coming to get his bride. Be a part of it. Gentlemen, chill out. It's not about perfection. It's about pursuit. She would rather you pursue her, take the initiative with your wife and kids, and show you a lot of grace than you be absent and aggressive. A gospel-centered wife has little to no struggle submitting to a man who is gospel-centered. She will gladly do it if she's a Christian. It will be her joy to do it. Some thoughts to consider. Gosh, man. Who do you sound like more, brothers? Look at me. The sinful man or the gospel-centered man? Are you characterized more by loneliness and daddy wounds and selfish passivity and selfish aggression? Or is your life marked by love? Love leads. Love is sacrificial. Love that pastors. Love that provides. Love that protects. Love that pursues. And brothers and sisters, when it comes, the Bible says that it is not meant for man to be alone, and yet we see over and over in Scripture the loneliness of man. But I want you to get this perfect picture from Jesus. Jesus drank the cup of wrath alone. Jesus had his skin ripped from his body alone. Jesus went to the cross alone. Jesus was in the grave alone. So that in Christ alone, you brothers will never be alone again. This is why the Bible can tell us in Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold you in my righteous right hand. If you want to see how the gospel-centered man lives, look in the face of his wife. What does she say about him? What does she say around him? What does she do and say when he is not there? What does she non-verbally say about him? You want to see how gospel-centered a man is? Look into the face of his wife. This week, gentlemen, I want you to sit down with your wife and I want you to ask her, am I a gospel-centered husband to you? I want you to sit down with your kids. I want you to ask them, am I a gospel-centered daddy to you? We're going to talk more about that in two weeks. I encourage you to sit down with a gospel-centered man or whom you believe it to be a gospel-centered man and ask him, do you believe that I am a gospel-centered man? Brothers, would you want your son to be like you? Brothers, would you want your daughter to be married to a man like you? Can, can you tell your wife or can your wife tell your daughter in the secrecy of their own home, you need to find a man like your daddy. Because your daddy loves Jesus. And your daddy loves me. Or behind closed doors, is she saying, never marry a man like your father. Serious. Brothers, I call you this morning that if you're struggling with these sins or if, if you're struggling, you look more like the first man or the first Adam instead of the second Adam who is Jesus. I call you to repent of these things, to seek forgiveness inside of your home. Brothers, in all of this, I want you to know it all crumbles. Please get this to me because this is what I'm mainly concerned about in everything that I said this morning, that brothers, if your home reeks of 
death and you do not understand it and your life is characterized by all of those first Adam sorts of things, I want you to know the reality is, is that it may be that you don't know Jesus to begin with. Therefore, that's the reason why you're having all the problems. And so I love you. I want to care for you. And we're calling you to repentance. We're calling you to come to Jesus to be saved. And the reason why you keep warring against this and warring against this and warring against this is because the Holy Spirit is not resting inside of your heart. And you need not merely confess your sin, but repent of your sin. And those things that go together, there can be a great separation in a man who constantly confesses and one who never repents. Are you a confessing man or are you a repenting man? Because repentance leads to change. Manhood means nothing without Jesus. This is not, can I tighten my bootstraps? Can I get more aggressive toward manliness? But a man is born out of one man's affections being greatly stirred for the ultimate man, Jesus. God wants us humbled. God wants us desperate. God wants us to realize that we are not alone, brothers. God wants us gospel-centered. God wants to do a work in our lives. And everything that He is calling you to do, I promise you, He is empowering you to do it.